Well, greetings and blessings to everyone on this Good Friday 2021. I know for so many of our listeners, family, friends, and colleagues, this past year has been a monumentally difficult period of grief, loss, and loneliness, making this time of anticipation and reflection on the miracle of Christ's death and resurrection even more powerful and triumphant this year. It is indeed Friday, friends, but Sunday is a coming. Sunday is a coming. And along with all of you, I anticipate with great joy shouting those universe changing words He is risen. He is risen indeed. In the spirit of this joyful gratitude, we are delighted to bring all fresh text listeners this conversation between John and Dr. Josh McNall, centered around Josh's excellent book, The Mosaic of Atonement. Moving forward, This monthly conversation series, as well as our weekly meditation series, will be available exclusively to our patron saints at patreon.com slash fresh text. However, once again, we wanted to make this discussion on atonement available for all listeners for this Good Friday. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text bonus episode. This is our April bonus episode. This month, we're having a conversation with Josh McNall about the Doctrine of Atonement, making reference to his book, Mosaic of Atonement. That's a really great book that integrates different aspects of Christ's work for us. thought that'd be really fitting during this Easter season. Josh is a theology professor at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, a sister institution to my own Indiana Wesleyan University. And it's located uh, in Oklahoma, obviously, from its uh, title in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. It was called Bartlesville College when I was a kid, just like my school was called Marion College in the town of Marion. Uh, But yeah, he's from Oklahoma Wesleyan. Uh, He's a graduate from there long before, but he was trained in England and he's an excellent theologian and a fantastic uh, preacher as well. And I was so excited to have him back on the show. He had been on the show a while back ago to talk about a text, but here we're just going to have a, a freewheeling conversation about his book and about the doctrine of atonement. We hope it'll be uh, edifying and enjoyable uh, for you. Yeah, well, let's just start there. What? Okay. Uh, yeah, where where did this project come from? How how did this get started? What motivated it for you? I was teaching a class a few years ago in our master's program on atonement, and so I had to read a ton of books for that class. And I thought, man, I I think there's some room here for a different approach to these models of atonement that is not pitting them against each other. We're trying to rank them uh, against each other, but also is not just sort of spreading them all out there and saying, ah, you know, we need them all and sort of a more of an integrated approach. And so that was really the beginning of the project. And then the, uh, the kind of image of a mosaic came shortly thereafter, uh, this image where you can actually see individual pieces, but you're not supposed to fixate on one individual piece. It's really about showing you a broader picture and in this case a picture of you know what Jesus has done. Yeah, that's great. So let's let's walk through your mosaic on the big picture first. Sure. Let me take a stab at it and see if I represent it accurately, yeah. which will be a good test case of both me as a reader and perhaps also you as a writer. Uh but <laughs> we'll leave it up there. Uh but so the image is that of the the feet of Christ as the recapitulation model, the kind of Irenaean approach, the kind of vicarious experiencing of our reality. And then the beating heart or center is the penal substitutionary atonement, which we associate with maybe Anselm, Thomas, Calvin, the reformers, but of course has its own roots even in the ancient tradition. And then the head, but as the kind of goal or telos, you call it, 
as being Christus Victor as well as moral influence are kind of two aspects of the telos, the for the glory of God, victory, and then also that this victory is meant to be accomplished in us, a la Romans 16, right? The victory that's still mm-hmm. to come in the transformation of our lives by the Spirit. Is that the basic picture? Did I get it right? And that's or did I misrepresent good. it? Okay. That's pretty good. There's one more piece. Uh, so, I Please. Got, you, you talked about the feet, the heart, the head. Oh, the hands. I misspoke. Yeah. I called it head. That's Sorry. Because right. I felt like it was logically connected in the way that you wrote it, correct? As kind of... It's a it's an aspect of the telos. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're the hands. My bad, my bad, my bad. Yes. You're good. But you're right that they're connected via, you know, like Romans 16 in the sense that it's through the transformation of God's people that we are kind of swept up in the ultimate victory of Christ's work. So, yeah, there's a connection between the the hands and the head, just like there's a connection really between all the pieces since right. they're a part of this unified work, but you can kind of, I bet that out. was a Hegelian preference for triads that made <laughs> me do that. I apologize. <laughs> Typical German. Deutschophile theologian. Yeah. Sorry. My chair was squeaking a lot and it's okay. So I, I had that same to problem. My non, my non squeaking chair for, for podcasting. So sorry. You can, you can cut that out, Todd, or you can just leave it in. Who cares? This is a bonus episode, right? This is for this is for the fans. Um, okay, good. Well, yeah. Well, we let's start from let's start from the end back. Then I, let me ask that question because as I read it, what I loved about this book, let me compliment it first, is it's really got a nice balance of image, metaphor, and conceptual clarification. You know most theological writings have a tendency to sort of prefer one or the other, right? So it's really conceptually rigorous and clear, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just lifeless. <laughs> yeah. Or there's a lot of, you know, playful lifelessness, but I just, there's no clear, I don't really actually understand the person's position at the end of the book. So yeah. you really did a great job of mixing those two. I just wanted to affirm that in you as both a thinker and a writer. Thanks. Yeah. So sort of, Working backwards conceptually first, um, well, no, I'll come back to that. I want to come back to that question of how the third and the fourth relate. Okay. But but that's conceptual. Let me start with the other end of the stick, picking it up from the the more imagistic. Like, how did this image come to you? Like it it feels like once you say it, it feels so natural. Like it feels like it came to you in a dream or something. It's just so clear. Yeah. And just tell me more about a little backstory to that, if you're willing. Yeah. I'm trying to remember kind of how it came to me because it, it really started so long ago. I, I went on a trip to Israel and it's the first and only time that I'd ever been to the Holy Land. And I remember being at uh, Caesarea by the sea there on the Mediterranean and and just coming across an ancient mosaic that they had uncovered that was a part of uh, even going back to around the first century. And it was still so vivid and the colors and then the, the particular pieces of it. Like I rem- I can still see that image in my mind. And then of course, as the book's cover, Zondervan did a great job with the cover, just this image of Christ's face as a mosaic. I've always found mosaics to be really striking visually and even the possibility for them to be used as kind of icons or in worship to direct our gaze toward Christ. And so I've always liked mosaics, but it seemed that it was a fitting metaphor for something that allowed you to see different pieces that made up the whole without fixating, kind of like I said earlier, on just one piece. And that really is one of my critiques against atonement doctrine in some cases is it becomes all about what your favorite piece is uh, over and against the other pieces, or it becomes kind of disordered or disorganized where there's not an appropriate integration between different models of atonement. So I guess one is just something that I've always appreciated visually, the use of mosaics in in the Christian tradition and worship and things like that, uh, or in our architecture But secondly, it fit with kind of some things that I'd, some hunches that I'd had about uh, atonement models in in general. Yeah. When did you take that trip to Israel? You know, I, 
everything, maybe I can't blame the pandemic for this because this was way before the pandemic, but <laughs> it was several years ago. I mean, I'm guessing it was probably like, you know, six, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that. 2014, 13. Yeah. And when did you, when did you teach this uh, atonement class the first time you said that kind of got you thinking there might be a, a different textbook? You know, a lot of books are written little behind the scenes for listeners, like a lot of books, a lot of books are written because no one, you just don't like any of the textbooks for your class. And so you write the textbook. And usually by the time you get it published, you're not teaching that class anymore. That's Somebody right. Else is. The and class they, they doesn't even exist it. anymore. Like it's <laughs> yeah, completely it's so gone. Like, but yeah, that's the, so the, when the did you teach was, that first? It was about the same time. Uh, okay. I don't remember exactly when it was, but yeah, I only taught the class one time. Really? Uh, and uh, so the class doesn't even exist anymore. But I I don't regret getting getting the book out of it, getting you know, oh, the yeah, project out of that. Yeah, so it sounds like there was a very organic integration of a sort of imagistic insight and a, a particular conceptual desire. Yeah, you put it in the in the introduction of the two extremes of kind of a disordered particularity on the one hand and uh, uh, something hierarchy on the other mm-hmm. where you're kind of ranking them. That's a clear problem. I think people have noticed that, mm-hmm. but then what it looks like to offer an integrated approach. I got to be honest, like the little game I was playing with myself as I was reading the book, mainly paying attention to what you had to say, but one little game I was playing constructively with it was kind of asking myself like, so how are you going to integrate without creating a hierarchy, mm-hmm. you know? And I think you succeeded, but I, I still, is still a little bit of a puzzle to mm-hmm. me. And I'm sure that reflects my own errors as a theologian to think that integration only comes by way of hierarchy. That's a very colonial way of thinking on my part. So I'm very open to that being, but it was interesting to think about like there is, if not a hierarchy, there is an order to the integration that you present. I mean, you really, the book you didn't write, but you could have written after the first part. (laughs) When I got to the end of the first part, I was like, he has just basically said that recapitulation is the foundation for everything else, which is a kind of ordering. It's saying, this is the secret to all them. Now, as you continued, that is exactly not what happened. Mm -hmm. You made it clear that it doesn't answer all the questions that need answered. Yeah. So bravo, you didn't fall into that trap, but there nevertheless is a kind of order. How does that strike you when I say that, that there's, there's still an order to the integration if it's not a strict hierarchy. It's yeah. not that one explains the others. It, right. It's that, but, but one is the foundation. One is the center. Mm-hmm. And there's a twofold telos back to my earlier yeah. observation. Well, first of all, I would say that not all hierarchy is bad. There clearly are. Yeah. Um, there's forms of hierarchy that are necessary and good and hierarchy doesn't necessarily imply like abuse or, or anything like that. But maybe the analogy, and this is not a perfect analogy, is the way we think about the doctrine of the Trinity where we don't really, I would say as, you know, being more in line with the broad swath of Trinitarian theology that I don't see a hierarchy within the imminent Trinity or within the eternal, you know, Godhead, but there is an order in the relationships yeah. and that order is even enshrined in creedal statements. And so I would say that there's something. Yeah, the son, kinda, the son is begotten by the father, not vice versa. Exactly. Yes. And so, but order yeah, does and not. Taxis, they call it in the East, yeah. right? A, a taxis. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I would, I am kind of saying something a little bit similar with regard to atonement models, that order does not necessarily imply a rigid hierarchy where like, this is the one ring to rule them all, you know, (laughs) in in some segments of the church, maybe in like, say, for instance, some elements of say, Southern Baptist churches, like it's all about penal sub. Everything has to be about penal sub. And if you don't make it all about penal sub, then you've, you're basically a, a liberal who's denied, you know, the faith. And then another elements of the tradition, it's all, you know, moral influence is kind of the load-bearing wall, and it's all about that. And that's the kind of oppositional hierarchy that I want to avoid. I'm not necessarily opposed to 
even all hierarchy within atonement models, I just am opposed to that kind of like overly simplistic, defensive approach to these models where we kind of pick one and say it's the most important, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So defensive hierarchy was the term. So that that adjective was important there because there is a a kind of order or kind of hierarchy or an order. I mean, to give an example that you give, uh, you can use the language of Christus Victor and even the language of recapitulation and still basic, the basic logic of your presentation is moral influence. Mm-hmm. As you point out with, uh, towards the end of the book with uh, Girard, right. he has all this Christus Victor motifs, mm-hmm. but, but the actual logic is a, is a, is a moral influence logic. Right. Yeah. So I, I thought that was, Really fascinating. And you also, well, we don't have to go down this road, but where was Anselm in this book? Several people have asked me that when I've done interviews about the book. are like, but, oh, sorry, bro. <laughs> but, but where was Anselm? And, I, and I've said this before. I'm like, glad he was absent. I'm glad he was absent because he's not a penal substitutionary theorist. Right. Yeah, and that's the reason he there. was absent. Yeah, he was absent because he's wrongly located within oh, great. the penal substitution model. And so since... Anselm's satisfaction approach, which deals with kind of the satisfaction offered to the wounded honor of God, since it really doesn't fit within one of these four models, you know, he's not included as kind of like a great exemplar of of one of these four models. He's obviously a very important theologian for the doctrine of the atonement, but he's often... uh, I'm thinking of a, a quote about uh, Martin Luther about, yeah, it was by Calvin about Luther where he, Calvin says that his flatterers have done him much mischief. And uh, <laughs> I think Anselm's flatterers and his detractors have done him much mischief because he's been wrongly kind of pigeonholed as penal substitution. And uh, so that's basically, that's why he doesn't get as much attention. It's just because he doesn't represent any of these four models, at least exclusively. Now, I I do say at one point in there that you can find elements of Christus Victor, you can find elements of moral influence within Anselm. So he's not completely absent, but he's just not kind of like the the fountainhead of, or the, the main exemplar of any of these four models. Yeah, you had a great little footnote, I think, in the first part where you mentioned that Anselm's starting point is a recapitulation sort of vision, and his yeah. end point is a moral influence, mm-hmm. but then the bulk of the argument is focused on actually a pretty idiosyncratic proto-substitutionary mm-hmm. <laughs> approach. Yeah. I don't think that's how you put it, but and you actually give it as an and you I think you gave it as an example of the fact that somebody has these motifs doesn't mean that their fundamental model embraces all of them. Right. So I I actually liked that Anselm was kind of sort of sidelined in the little story you're telling because he's gets too much press and it probably bad for atonement doctrine and bad for Anselm who I love, Mm -hmm. but for very different reasons than he's often, I I feel like that text can be read very differently. Um, It sounds like you're very open to a much different way of reading what he's up to. Yeah. Well, that's fun. I'm glad I asked that. Let's take a quick break and let's see if I can find something we can disagree about in case that's more interesting. Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text bonus episode, talking with Josh McNall about the doctrine of atonement and using his book, Mosaic of the Atonement, as our uh, jumping off point. So I asked about I asked about Anselm and mentioned that he has a kind of maybe an under-integrated approach, but he has different elements. I'm curious if you, and you mentioned maybe this a bit on the fly, but I thought I'd ask, who would be some antecedents of your attempt to integrate this great doctrine? So ones who, examples of figures who, are at least moving in that direction away from those extreme, you know, your spectrum of defensive hierarchy on one end and, and, you know, a disordered plurality on the other mm-hmm. that who would you think are some figures, whether that was their purpose I th- or whether even on accident, 
Anselm's too early to be doing that on purpose. He's not thinking these as different models. Right. What, what would you think would be some antecedents of figures that are well, kind of somewhat doing that? If you're going to go super early, I think you see it in somebody like Irenaeus. Of course, he's not thinking in terms of our modern conception of atonement models, but he is viewing Christ as the new and true Adam. He even has some language about uh, that evokes some images of Christ bearing the judgment that we deserve. And he, and he views Jesus also as kind of securing this great triumph or victory. And so you see some integration even way back early on in say around the second century with, with Irenaeus, but another guy that's often kind of underappreciated as someone who does pull in different images or models uh, of atonement is even somebody like Peter Abelyard, who is usually he's held up as like the ultimate example of somebody who just has one ring to rule them all one model and it's moral influence. And that's what gets him in trouble. And one of the things I note in the book is that the problem with that is nobody ever reads Abelyard <laughs> to find out that he actually does have other treatments of the atonement models, images. He, he has statements that just sound just blatantly like penal substitution. He has statements of Christ securing this victory, you know. So he's a guy who is also kind of like Anselm, I think, been a little done a disservice by later theologians, many of whom you know, haven't sat down and read his Romans commentary or other works to to see that he does put together different pieces, so to speak, rather than just- Or even focusing. if they read them, the passion to construct a neat typology blinded yeah. them to the evidence, right? Right. Because <laughs> that is a favorite habit of the modern, and it has something to do with the split up of into confessional churches. The modern theology was sort of birthed in the polemic of different confessions- yeah. And then as it turns more professional and academic, there's the kind of ironic way of doing that, which is here are the options, you know, just sitting them next to each other. You know, here's different models of something. And, and it makes us really terrible readers of history because then we go and read a figure as the exemplar of something yeah. and run roughshod over the evidence. Your chapter on Abelard was awesome, dude. I really liked it. Thanks. Precisely on that front, like very clearly seeing there's a lot more going on here, mm-hmm. which at the very least demonstrates there can be an integration of these models. Abelard's version of moral influence doesn't hinge on rejecting penal substitution, which is how right. it's usually presented in yeah, 19th thanks. and 20th centuries. And to be fair, I mean, he doesn't always do himself, he doesn't help himself out much in the way he frames some of his statements. And so it, it lends itself to misconstrual and, and things like that. But yeah, so I'd say Irenaeus is an example very early, Abelyard later, somebody like John Calvin in the relationship between victory and Christ's sin-bearing death. I think, you know, you see him kind of putting that together in, in ways that are, that I'd draw upon in that chapter. So there are people all along the way, theologians all along the way, who have been integrating different aspects of the atonement. And it's certainly not something that I'm the first one to to go about doing. Yeah, well I'm sure you'd never be so arrogant as to think you were the <laughs> the originator of all good things. Uh that's helpful to see. I, I was thinking about Calvin with his prophet priest king heuristic as an example of, again, that's not, that's not a single image the way that your mosaic is, but it is a shorthand. Oh, you get your triad that way. True. That's probably why I like it. Right. But that's one thing that's been bequeathed into the tradition and that I know that there are, I mean, even in, in, in preaching context, conversational context, you don't have to have a lot of uh, detailed background in atonement theory to kind of simply say, hey, well, Jesus wasn't only our priest, he's also our prophet and our king. Like that can be, you know, that can be slipped in. Now, sadly, the Calvinist tradition has tended to reduce atonement to the priestly office and to think of those other two as other things. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's how Calvin thinks though. That's, Mm -hmm. I think what I'm hearing you say is that, that actually the kind of uh, the victory that is one through the cross and resurrection, which isn't linked to his kingly office. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, he's at least, and I, I actually, 
you know, not exclusively thinking of the prophet, priest, king triad, but just in in the way he links the victory to Christ's, you know, judgment bearing or sin bearing death is something that I think is, and I argue in my chapter on uh, penal substitution, there's a biblical linkage there. If you want to go to certain texts in the New mm-hmm. Testament that ex- that are kind of linking the triumph to the canceling of the debt, you know, and the, or the the sin bearing death of Christ, there's a relationship between that sacrificial death or that payment for sin or that judgment bearing death, however you want to say it, to the victory. And I think it comes down to kind of the role of Satan, the accuser, you know, the accuser of the saints and his ability to make accusation is removed specifically by Christ's sacrificial death, you know, and so that that's one of the reasons why the cross becomes an instrument of triumph and not just an instrument of torture or just an example of sacrificial love or something like that. Oh, man. Thanks for bringing up Satan. Let's talk about Satan. (laughs) That's so good. So, I'll say for for listeners who are not familiar with the book that it has this nice structure where – so, this is obviously for the listeners, not you. You know the outline of your book, Josh. But uh, it has this nice structure where the first chapter in each part – there's four parts – and the first or sometimes – yeah, usually the first chapter just kind of lays it out, usually has some historical treatments – And then the second and sometimes third, if there's an extra chapter, sort of deals with problems, right? Mm -hmm. So, there's kind of a key problem or problems for each of the models. So, the whole problem of the historical Adam is the kind of problem with recapitulation in part one. Mm -hmm. In part two, the standard problems of the whether there's a biblical basis, whether there's a uh, uh, the character of God and whether it's culturally relevant to talk about penal substitution, the problem of deceit and of Satan and like tricking mm-hmm. Satan and all that is the sort of big problem with Christus Victor, the third model. Yeah. And then the fourth model sort of deals with problems while discussing the two hands, uh, Abelard and, and, and Girard and kind of critically mm-hmm. appropriates the two of them who have a lot of good things to say, but you kind of don't want to go all the way with them. Did, did I represent that correctly yeah, yeah. or no, that's right. any yeah. tweaks if you need it? No, there's, you know, since there's four parts to the book and each part basically gets three chapters. So, you kind of have the historical introduction as the first chapter dealing with some objections or problems as the second chapter and then kind of integrating that model with the other models, which is typically the third chapter. Penal sub is the one uh, the one exception to that rule, just because there are so many objections that I, I needed another chapter <laughs> to keep it from being like, you know, a hundred page chapter or something like that. Right, right, right. Need a little more space. Yeah. The, uh, I think at one point you refer to them as the, the explanatory, the apologetic, and then the integrative task. Yes. And that that's repeated yeah. each time. And those integrative chapters, like, for a systematic theologian like me, those were my favorites. Those were so exciting to see you draw connections between the different models. That was just a blast. My historical theology training made me love the other chapters, of course, but mm-hmm. there's a lot here for different kinds of interests and readers. Not that I would recommend jumping just to the chapters that you like, but it doesn't stay stuck in a historical mode or just in an exegetical mode or just a systematic mode. It's moving back and forth between those which helps you kind of, as you're reading through it in a linear way, you kind of don't get bored because it shifts method repeatedly and runs that gamut. Because books that are like, that have like the first hundred pages or the biblical roots and then the next hundred pages of the history. And the, I hate, I hate books like that because I'm mm-hmm. like, I'd like to hear you actually say something, Mr. Author. Uh, so, yeah. it, you sprinkle your own systematic work into it. So, that's, I guess I'm just complimenting you, but also summarizing it for our listeners. And also contextualizing this question of Satan and how he plays in. And I mean, and this does bring us back to Anselm because I mean, the Anselm, one of his major tasks, one of his motivators, at least as I understand him, mm-hmm. was to sideline the role of the devil in Augustine's sort of most famous treatments mm-hmm. of the work of the cross. Mm-hmm. The devil's looms too large in Anselm's view, I think. And one of his agendas, maybe not his only, but a major motivating factor is, can we come up with an account that really 
sidelines the devil. Of course, this creates a different problem because a good story always needs an enemy, as you point out. And so the enemy ends up being either God or us or both, which is kind of the problem then of the tradition that comes after Anselm. Mm -hmm. But he's really a transitional figure. He's kind of setting aside the devil. And I see you trying to kind of bring Satan back into the story, but really playing a, a different role than he's often that he often plays in your standard Christus Victor way of talking. You already hinted at some of it with, with Calvin and the accuser, but I've been Mm -hmm. talking long enough talk to me a little bit about, about the place of Satan or the devil in atonement theology and in theology in general. Yeah. I mean, like you said, every story needs a villain and uh, the problem, you know, C.S. Lewis has his famous quote about the devil where he says, there's two opposite errors that you can fall into with regard to the devils. And the first one is excessive fascination. You're just, too focused on the devil, you give him too much importance, almost make him like an equal adversary with God, you know, so there's the excessive fascination error. And then on the other side, there is what I would call like an excessive demythologization where you kind of like say, well, the devil's the superstitious vestige of a of a bygone era, and we don't really need to focus on him. And there's a little bit of that going on when the bad guy just becomes almost exclusively us, you know, uh, with our sinfulness and our fallenness and our rebellion and the devil's just sort of sidelined almost entirely. And then there's another form of sidelining the devil within a kind of modernist perspective that has real big problems with the quote supernatural um and so we have to sort of psychologize the demonic as just you know various forms of mental illness or superstition you know and so those are two ways that the devil gets sort of sidelined in in theology one's a really conservative quote unquote way to sideline the devil where you just focus on me and my sinfulness and then the other is a stereotypically kind of modernist liberal way to sideline the devil. But yeah, I am trying to pull Satan back into the drama of atonement because I think scripture clearly places the accuser within within the drama without maybe toppling over the edge of one of those two extremes. You know, Anselm, I think it is, who has the quote where he says, the only thing that God ever owed the devil was punishment. So, he didn't like the idea that God was having to pay off Satan with some sort of tricky ransom to to get back, you know, humanity. And, and I think that's right. There's some kind of crass, mythic ways in which the ransom model was construed that gave the devil too much power and so, I think Anselm was right to kind of pull things back a little bit. But, you know, as it always goes in history or in theology or in politics or in anything, the pendulum just keeps swinging. Yeah, you and- solve one problem, it creates another one. Exactly. Because like right. Anselm, of course, one of the one of the huge sections of Anselm's Cur Deus Homo that's often taken out in anthologies, although it's crucial to the argument, is the replacing of the number of fallen angels, yes. which is actually probably – at least as I understand Anselm is probably that God's primary motive is the disorder of the heavens mm-hmm. that needs to be reordered. So we're actually kind of minor characters in the Anselm thing. God's not all super pissed at us the way that he mm-hmm. later versions of the so-called Anselm approach. Yeah. It's um, all balancing the ledger of. Yeah. The, the <laughs> and, and, and what's hilarious is like, it's, there's no demythologizing motive in Anselm. Mm-hmm. It has to do with certain notions of justice that right. God doesn't owe the devil anything, right? Uh, and I think I think he's dead right to critique that very narrow. It's a narrow critique. It's not a general because clearly angels are playing a really big role. So yeah. if angels are playing a big role. He's clearly not a demythologizer, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to come back to Enzone, but it's it's just very ironic that probably the first openly critical. I, I don't know if maybe you, maybe your history has proven otherwise, but the sort of an openly critical proto-scholastic critique, a uh, sort of openly critical pushback on the ransom as mm-hmm. a model. Yeah. It's really Anselm. So in many ways, he kind of starts the history of atonement theology as competing models, right? Which is a more scholastic way of thinking of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's interesting then that you are trying to kind of bring it back in. And I notice you keep preferring the translation of Hasatan as the accuser. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's really the key is to see that he 
is the one who accuses us, mm-hmm. just that links back to p- penal substitution and the way that the power of the cross is to make that curse, that accusation invalid right. so that it can't touch us and, and links up to kind of Luther's spirituality of a kind of, you know, get behind me, Satan kind of approach to seeing Satan as the one who's constantly trying to get me to question my status mm-hmm. as a beloved child of God um, and how the crosses are objectively, but also subjectively our resistance to that accusation. Yeah. Am I capturing you right? Or am I pushing you yeah. in a different direction than you want to no. go? No, that's right. I think it's helpful to, especially for those of us who've grown up seeing Satan exclusively with a capital S as like a personal name, it's important to remind ourselves of the definite article that is often there, not always, but often there in scripture that that, that should be seen not just as like a character or a person or a personage, but like also like a role or a function, this kind of prosecuting attorney almost, or this unscrupulous accuser who is pointing out our stains or unworthiness, you know, the role of Satan in the book of Job, you know, in the prologue is like, well, listen, this guy is only praising you because he's got all this cool stuff and you take all his cool stuff away and he'll curse you to your face. I mean, he's only seeing the sort of unworthiness or reading Job through the most cynical of lenses that you do often see in the legal system where you have, say, a prosecuting attorney or even a police officer who's used to dealing with like the worst aspects of human behavior. And pretty soon you start to see all humans as only this sort of cynical or uh, blameworthy characteristic. I think that metaphor of this kind of unscrupulous accuser is helpful to capturing, you know, Satan's character within the scriptures. And so keeping the 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 or the definite article can be helpful in understanding what's what's going on in the biblical storyline sometimes oh man that's great thanks for for expressing that it's super super good well let's take a quick break and come back and maybe explore what this might look like practically sure And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text bonus episode uh, for month of April for Easter. This is dropping uh, scheduled to drop on uh, April uh, 1st or 2nd, the Friday, first Friday of April, which happens to be Good Friday this year. So I've got a Good Friday and Easter preaching on my mind. So I thought it'd be fun at the end to just say, just to open it up with really two questions and you can take one or both together. The practical question of just what, uh, you know, what would be some implications of how you would go about preaching the gospel, preaching the cross, preaching Easter, and preaching and teaching and talking about, talking about the cross from your approach? Like if we took your approach seriously, took it to heart, mm-hmm. uh, how might we, how might that shape how we go about communicating the gospel privately, publicly, preaching, teaching, any context is fine. And the second little addendum is I just wanted to say, if there is some glaring gap of topic in your book that we didn't talk about and you want to slip that in under the wire, feel free to bring that into. <laughs> so those are really the only two questions I had left in my mind for this last segment. Sure. Well, I mean, I think for pastors and for preachers, one of the things that the book brings to mind is just the need to ask a question about what, how am I preaching the gospel? How am I preaching the cross or the resurrection or the atonement? you know, and to kind of do an inventory as a preacher and say, am I really only talking about one aspect of it? You know, in sometimes in the revivalist tradition or in certain, certain traditions, like, well, it's all about, you know, Jesus took your punishment. So, you know, you should feel bad because Jesus got punished in your place, but it's also good news because now you don't have to be punished. We're like, well, that's, that's kind of one picture of the atonement, but it's not the only one. And it might not even really be like the best articulation of the idea that Jesus bore uh, the judgment for sin in our place. So I think it's helpful for preachers, even it's helpful for me, because sometimes you can write an academic book, but it doesn't necessarily change the way you do your popular level preaching, because you're just kind of in a rhythm or a habit of you know, preaching one aspect of the cross. So, I think the first thing that I would say for preachers this uh, Lenten season and moving into 
Holy Week and Easter is to just think about, are there aspects of the, the atonement that are under kind of presented in your preaching? And so, those four models that I deal with in the book are not the only ones, but they can give you a way of saying, here's another facet of Christ's work that I can highlight. And I think that's important, not just to do justice to the scriptures, although that's true, but different aspects of the atonement or the solution, you might say, help to highlight different aspects of our human plight or our human problem. And sometimes when you only preach one aspect of redemption, you also only highlight one piece of our plight or our predicament. And so, you're really maybe not even speaking to the whole congregation. You're only speaking to maybe one kind of person when you leave out those other aspects of of redemption. So, that would be one application for some preachers or some pastors, or just for Christians as we move through Lent and and toward, toward Easter. Um, the second thing I would say is if there we've there's no way we could talk about the whole book um, obviously in a podcast interview, but one of the things I bring up in part four of the book, which is where we talk about the moral influence model of atonement, is how uh, my own tradition and your own tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, has something to add to the conversation, and I think it's you know it's the emphasis on the prevenient work of the Holy Spirit to enable a kind of ability to respond to the gospel, but not in a heavy-handed puppet master kind of way where God is just pulling our our faith strings, so to speak, so that the moral influence, which in Wesleyan tradition we, we would call, you know, holiness, you know, is awakened and empowered by the Holy Spirit and so, to slur that model of atonement as somehow like semi-Pelagian or works-based or human-centered is, it's not just unfair to the better aspects of the Wesleyan tradition, but it's really just not true biblically since um, the moral influence that's brought about in the atonement is, is the fruit of the Spirit's work, awakening and sustaining and perfecting all along the way. And so, we can't leave out the person of the Holy Spirit when we're talking about atonement. To, to come back to your triad thing, too often, Bingo. The <laughs> <laughs> too often the atonement conversation gets boiled down to an exchange between the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is- And or the devil. And or the devil. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit's completely left out of the conversation, and the Spirit is is so essential to the the reconciling and perfecting work that that is going on within within the Trinity. Well, man, that's really good stuff. I mean, this is yeah. I almost went there at the beginning. I'm glad we're doing it here at the end. So, so I was a hundred percent on board with everything you said in that last chapter and everything you just said now. And side note, Charles Wesley's hymns would be an example of a quasi-integrated approach because yep. all four of these models appear. Yeah. Um, and a side note to go with that, back to the practical question. I don't know. Christmas preaching is really good for recapitulation kind of talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Lenten preaching, building up to the cross, really great for penal substitution. Yeah. Christus Victor, really great for Easter season after the resurrection. And moral influence is really great from Pentecost through the rest of the year, right? I mean, in a way, you could almost, even if you don't follow the church year strictly, yeah. just that basic rhythm of winter to spring through the summer gives you a sense of like, you know, these four models are almost kind of integrated into the the church year in a way. And you could find yeah. great Charles Wesley hymns that would fit all of these John too, but I mean, almost stronger because he's as a poet, if he, when, when John writes a hymn or when he writes a thing, he tries to cover all his bases and it doesn't always work as well. Like it, because yeah. it sounds to me like you're not suggesting that a really good sermon on the atonement really needs to have the whole mosaic. Like you're still okay. It sounds like me, if I'm hearing you right, it's okay to pick up one aspect and run with it. That's going to be clearer. It's going to be more yeah. uh, 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 affective and effective. Yeah. 
but just make sure you're balanced in general as a teacher and preacher. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's like, at least for me early on preaching and when I wasn't preaching as frequently, the sermons tended tended to be like, well, let me give you everything. Like a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it goes the whole Bible, the whole systematic theology, and it's scattered, and it's like it's like uh, you know, birdshot instead of a you know, a bullet to the heart, you know, that's focused. And so, I think that actually it would be better in in many cases not to try to like cover all the different aspects of atonement in a single sermon, but to realize that. You have the entire church year, an entire lifetime to point to the greatness of God displayed in Christ, you know, through the power of the spirit. And you, you can focus on just one facet, you know, in a, in a sermon and really do justice to that or try to, and that might be better than trying to present this whole integrated um, mosaic in, in a single, you know, 20, 30 minute talk. That's cool. That's helpful. That that resonates with me because, yeah, it could get a little bulky trying yeah. to – and I wouldn't want to, any of our listeners to get sort of anxious that I need to cover all the bases every time I present the mm-hmm. gospel, as it were, but take stock in my overall approach. Oh, that's really good. So, here's a little conceptual question I'll leave with you that we I've been hinting at all along, and you don't even have to answer this. You can just say, you know – what a dumb question, John. I don't know think about that. But I loved everything in that last chapter, like I said. But I did worry that this is, according to your subtitle, an integrated approach to Christ's work, that you were solving a problem in, in one account of the work of Christ by appealing to the work of the Spirit. Now, Opera Trinitatis ad extra indivisivia sunt. All the works of the Trinity are indivisible outside of themselves. So I have no objection to that in principle, but rather just strategically, uh, it made me wonder if, like, the role of the Spirit in the the work of the the work of the Spirit vis a vis the work of Christ mm-hmm. could actually be integrated in all four of the models. Yeah. And this isn't me telling you, you need to go rewrite your book. It's more of sort of thought experiment for you mm-hmm. and even for readers to kind of, do we have to wait till the head as it were, or the hands, excuse right. me, to make that turn. And maybe that was the right choice. I think the bo- the, the book would have become ridiculously long if yeah. you had a pneumatological element in each part. But I guess I'm mostly just asking the short answer is the short question for today, since we have two minutes left. Before you have to go, what BB guns with your son, right? Uh, uh, the 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 short question is: Would you be open to that sort of experiment, or yeah. would that contradict your focus? Did you really want to keep the pneumatology in that fourth part, or would you be open to that expansion on your work? No, that's a great question because I think you're right. You don't want to say just right at the very end and only in moral influence. And here why here's why the Holy Spirit matters, you know, as if the Spirit has not been essential in each model along the way. And I'm actually working on another book on the atonement right now, which is for lay readers, so not for scholars. Um, and I'm kind of trying to do that a little more fully. Fantastic. Um, in that book. And so here's an example of another place, I think, that the Spirit comes in. Um, I debated a lot whether or not to use the language of penal substitution or whether to use language of incorporation or representation or vicarious judgment, right? And the reason I debated that is I think they're both true. There is an extent to which Christ bears this judgment in our place instead of us. But there is also an extent to which we are bound up with him. So that's more of an incorporative thing. You know, Paul talks about being crucified with Christ and all of the language in the scriptures of being in Christ, you know. Um, And so how that connects with the spirit, um, and I probably deal with this a little bit in the book, but it needs to be dealt with more is that I think 
the Spirit is essential when we talk about how union with Christ or bound upness or bound togetherness with Christ takes place. You know, it's not just yeah, that the Spirit good. makes us holy, it's that the Spirit makes us one with Christ and and his holiness <laughs> and yeah, yeah yeah so i think it's a great point to say we can't just only talk about the holy spirit at the very end you know when we get to moral influence we have to be incorporating pneumatology all along the way so i hope to do that a little more in this next book it'll be for, That's great for lay readers not for scholars but it's a it's a great it's a great point that's great. Well, it wasn't meant as a damning criticism. I, I, I had every reason to believe you thought the spirit was there all along, but uh, just at a structural level, you know, when, when we create a structure, it makes you notice, oh, where? Yeah, I think the spirit could just for fun, and then you got to go, I know, but that the spirit could play into the recapitulation stage mm-hmm. as the, the, the mediator and power by which Jesus undergoes all these experiences, especially right. in the way that Luke narrates it. You know, he's just the one who yeah. drives him into the wilderness. He's the one who, yeah. uh, and I think you do hint at that at one point. So yeah, anyway, that was just a little fun thing at the end, but yeah. man, it was a really great book. I really appreciate the time that you gave to, to talk about it uh, for the sake of our listeners. And um, I'm sure they'll, they'll benefit from the conversation and benefit even more if they pick up the book. So, yeah. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. And um, I, I always enjoy talking with you and we'll, we'll do it again sometime. For sure. Let's do it. Well, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Thanks to Todd and Eric for all their production work. I couldn't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to our patron saints who support the show. We appreciate them so very much. And if you haven't become a patron saint, uh, please consider doing so by going to patreon.com slash fresh text. That's patreon.com slash fresh text and you can see different levels by which you can support the show there thanks to Tom Madison for donating the theme music thanks of course to Josh for uh, being on the show this week and last of all we say have a good preach and a great week bye bye <laughs>